Amen. Well, uh, the parable of the prodigal son was uh, apparently um, one of the Queen's favourite biblical stories. The parable of the prodigal son. It's not difficult to see why. It's a great story, isn't it? I think it's probably my favourite story in the whole Bible. I guess some of us might say the same. It's uh, called, in this version, if you look at above verse 11, the parable of the lost son. I don't know whether that loses something. It doesn't quite have the same ring about it as the parable of the prodigal son, even if the word prodigal isn't one we use terribly frequently. Uh, I didn't actually know what prodigal really meant. It means wasteful. That's all it means. The prodigal son, uh, it's really like the parable of the wasteful son because the prodigal son wasted uh, what he was given. And at first glance, it looks like a quite familiar scene, doesn't it, with the younger son going off for maybe like an extended gap year, uh, having a great time at the beginning, heavily subsidised by the bank of dad. And uh, he's sort of young and wild and footloose and fancy free, but eventually he gets himself into a bit of a pickle and he runs out of money and he decides that the best thing for it is to slink back home with his tail firmly between his legs. And plenty of people have done similar, haven't they? I mean, perhaps, perhaps we've done similar to that in our youth, or maybe uh, we know people who have, or we've got children who have. Uh, well, uh, surely what could be the harm in that? But actually, if we look closely at the story as Jesus sets the scene, uh, what's going on here at the beginning of this parable is really quite significantly deeper rebellion than it first appears. The request in verse 12, if you look at verse 12, where the youngest son says to his father, give me my share of the estate, is an outrageous insult to a father in that culture. There would have likely been a sharp intake of breath at this point in the parable, as Jesus was originally telling the story, as his listeners were shocked by what the son said. Because actually, when does a son normally inherit? At the death of the father. And so, in effect, by asking for his inheritance now, this son is really saying, could you please hurry up and go? Because I want what's coming to me. That's really what the son is saying. So one scholar who's based in the Middle East says this. For years, he says, I've been asking people from all walks of life, from Morocco to India, from Turkey to the Sudan, about the implications of a son's request for his inheritance while his father is still living. And the answer has almost always been emphatically the same, he says. The conversation runs as follows. I ask, has anyone made such a request in your village? The response comes, never. And then I say, could anyone make such a request? And they always reply, impossible. If anyone did, what would happen? His father would beat him, of course. Why? Because the request means that he wants his father to die. So the, the son's request is an extraordinary insult to his father. It's almost unbelievable that the father just simply grants the request at the end of the verse 12. It just says that he divided his property between them without saying a word. And it's the first glimpse that we get in this parable of the limitless grace of the father towards his children. And so the son goes off to the distant country in verse 13. He squanders his wealth in wild living, which is an evocative description, isn't it? Which I'm sure we can fill in the blanks. In fact, verse 30, we get some of the blanks filled in for us as the elder brother tells us what his younger brother had spent his money on. Wine, women and song. 
And so through a combination of um, bad decisions and bad luck, verse 14 says that about that time there was a severe famine, uh, so he began to be in need. And all of his new friends presumably abandoned him while he was no longer there to pay for everybody's drinks. And verse 15 says that he had to go and hire himself out to a citizen of that country, which must have been quite a long way away if they're keeping pigs, bearing in mind where they were. And it doesn't get much lower for someone who was Jewish than to be feeding figs and longing to eat pig food. No one gave him anything. It's difficult to imagine someone whose life looks less like the life of the prodigal son than Queen Elizabeth II, isn't it? Don't you think? I mean, she looks nothing like this, the way that she lived her life. There have been plenty of other younger siblings in the Queen's uh, generations of her family who've rebelled and run away and struck up inappropriate relationships, possibly blown all their cash and got themselves in a right royal pickle. Uh, we don't have to think too far to think of some younger siblings who've, who've been a bit rebellious, haven't we? Elizabeth's younger sister, for one, you, you know, was, uh, was in the shadow, in a sense, of her older sibling. Uh, her younger son, uh, Prince Andrew, has been regularly described in our media as being like a prodigal son, and for that matter, the Queen's younger grandson. But not Elizabeth. Elizabeth wasn't like this at all. You know, the prodigal son wanted his father to move over so that he could inherit. That's not what Elizabeth would have wanted. The inheritance that Elizabeth came into was a huge burden of responsibility, wasn't it? Her uncle didn't want it. He abdicated his responsibility. Her father, therefore, became king, somewhat reluctantly, we understand. The queen certainly didn't want to lose her father. She loved him dearly. She wouldn't have chosen to inherit early as this son did. But having inherited, the queen then did take responsibility where the prodigal son didn't. She didn't squander her wealth in wild living, did she? I mean, there have been possibly members of the royal family who have uh, possibly lived a rather self-interested, maybe even prodigal existence, but not the queen. She lived a life of faithful and committed service. Uh, There have been those who possibly, down the centuries, have used their position of privilege and wealth to engage in inappropriate relationships, as the younger son did in verse 30, but not the queen. She married the only man she ever loved and was faithfully committed to him for three quarters of a century of marriage. Uh, The prodigal son ended up homeless. The queen was anything but homeless, was she? I tried to work out how many queens has the home actually got, and it's not easy to arrive at an answer, but safe to say she never knew anything but the most comfortable mattresses and the freshest and finest linen every night she ever slept. And the prodigal son went hungry. Do you suppose the queen ever involuntarily missed a meal? I imagine she was able to eat whatever she liked, whenever she liked. So the life that the queen lived was almost diametrically opposed to the life of the prodigal sons. And in many ways, she might have been more tempted to be like the older brother. Don't you think? You know, the older brother in verse 29 says, you know, that he'd been get there year after year. He'd been keep towing the party line, never disobeying orders, serving away, slaving even, doing his duty, never making a fuss, never 
explain, never complain. And yet, actually, in reality, the Queen was nothing like either of these siblings, neither the prodigal son or the elder brother. And the parable is about them both. If you look at verse 11, as Jesus sets the parable up, it wasn't there was a man who had a son, the parable of the prodigal son. This is a, a man who had two sons, and the parable is about them both. They are both equally lost. It's the younger son who runs away, but neither of them are particularly happy at home with their father. The older brother is just as far away from his father relationally as his younger brother. It's just that he hadn't got the cuts to run away. He stayed at home not because he loved his father, but because he had to. He was doing his duty. And so actually, in this parable, the older brother represents God-fearing, law-abiding, church-going, morally upstanding Christians, but for whom the love of the father possibly has grown cold. And they've become a little bit like Pharisees. This is actually who Jesus was talking to throughout this whole chapter. Have a look at verse 1, the start of this section. Chapter 15, verse 1, describes the context. It says that the tax collectors and sinners, all these prodigal sons, were gathering around to hear Jesus, who had welcomed them with open arms. But the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the older brothers, were outside muttering. What's he doing partying with them? So in fact, we might be tempted to think that this parable isn't really for us. We might think, well, I haven't run away. I've kept my nose clean. But actually, the pews of the Church of England are much more likely to be occupied by older brothers to whom Jesus is actually speaking in this chapter, who mistakenly assume that divine favour is actually earned by hard work and a solid religious performance. That's precisely who Jesus is talking to. And his whole message, the whole message of the gospel is that actually God's love is unconditional towards his children. What matters is not so much the performance of the children as the grace and the love and the mercy and the outstretched arms of the Father who runs towards us. And that's why, verse 20, he got up, went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. He must have been at the window, waiting, watching, praying for the day when he would return. And he was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, which is presumably not something that one would expect an ancient patriarch to be seen doing very often. Incredibly undignified threw his arms around him and kissed him. That's the father. The father that the Pharisees had grown cold towards. Perhaps some of us have too, I don't know. Maybe. But not the queen. Older brothers need to be reminded of the wonderful truth in verse 31. My son, my child, you're always with me. How amazing is that? You're always with me and everything I have is yours. That's what older brothers need to hear, but the queen knew that. The queen knew that because she reminded that the presence of her heavenly father was infinitely precious to her every Christmas, didn't she, in her broadcasts. She's the most effective televangelist, I think, that's ever lived. Every year she would tell us about the love of the father. In 1975, she said that one person, by his example and revelation, has made an enormous difference to the lives of people who've come to understand his teaching. His simple message of love has been turning the world upside down. 
ever since. She knew the forgiveness of the Father. In 2011, she said, as we heard on that film, that history teaches us we actually need saving. But so God has sent into the world a unique person, not a philosopher or a general, although they're important, but a saviour with the power to forgive. We think, well, did the queen need really forgiving? That's what the older brother must have been thinking. I mean, the queen was, she was a good person. Her life looked nothing like as rebellious as this prodigal son's. And nevertheless, she knew that actually all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are in need of his forgiveness every single day. And the queen lived a life of repentance, which is not something that all people necessarily find that easy, even though some who claim to be Christians. There's an amazing interview with Donald Trump, the 12th president that the Queen had the fortune or misfortune to encounter, who also claims to be a Christian. But he was asked at one point about his faith in a Q&A session, and he said this, people are shocked to find out that I'm a Protestant, I'm a Presbyterian, and I go to church, and I love God, and I love my church, he said. Moderator Frank Luntz asked Trump whether he's ever asked God for forgiveness for his actions. Trump said, I'm not sure I have. I just go on and try to do a better job from there. Well, the Queen knew that she was in need of forgiveness. She was an Anglican. She confessed regularly that she had sinned, as we have just done, in thought and word and deed, through negligence, through weakness, through our own deliberate fault. She knew that we need a saviour, the power to forgive, and that her acceptance before God was not on the basis of her having done her duty, important as that is, but on the basis of the outstretched arms of the gracious father who ran towards her. If it's not too irreverent to do so, isn't it just amazing to speculate for a moment about the experience that the queen must be having now as she comes face-to-face with the king of kings. Having spent her earthly life being bowed to, she's now in the presence of the one at whose name every knee will bow, including hers. Having spent her earthly life living in rather large houses with many rooms, she's now in the presence of the one who said, in my father's house are many mansions, And I dare say that they possibly look, make Buckingham Palace and Sandringham and Balmoral and Windsor Castle look rather cramped and cosy by comparison, don't you? She never ran away like the prodigal, but she has nevertheless been welcomed home now on the basis of the father's outstretched arms. She's had some experience throughout her life, hasn't she? More than us, perhaps, of robes and rings and feasts in verse 22. But now, a robe the like of which she's never seen, has been placed upon her back. A ring more valuable than any in the collection of the crown jewels has been set upon her finger. And she's taken her seat at the banquet to end all banquets. Will we follow her? Have we been swept up in the outstretched arms of the gracious father who runs towards us? Will younger prodigals return home and will older pharisaical brothers unfold their arms and come in from outside let's pray